You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak, your host this week. Thanks very much for being with us on America's Web Radio. Together with my inimitable host, Dr. Hal Schurz, we bring you the very best in healthcare policy chat radio. Uh, we broadcast live every Thursday morning on America's Web Radio, and you can listen to us at your convenience via podcast. Um, we are grateful for your listenership. We are grateful for your support. Uh, we are also grateful for your financial support, and that issue... Uh, I'm going to lead with a little bit here in the, with the conversation because we uh, are at a bit of a crossroads uh, with the financial support of the Doctor Patient Care Foundation. Uh, and this is, yes, another plea for financial support, but the situation has taken on a slightly different dimension as time has gone on. We are in our fourth year uh, in existence as a foundation, as a 501c3, and we have enjoyed um, – our existence uh, based on the financial support of a small number of very large donors. Uh, and their intent in the beginning was to help us get started, to help us start up. But now as we get into third year, fourth year, uh, those large folks need to see something from you. They need to see something from the listeners. They, the, they need to see something from the folks who uh, benefit from the products that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation produces, uh, whether those are meetings, whether they are this podcast, or they are other things that we do. But at this point, uh, you know what we are hearing is that they need to see evidence of your interest as a listener, as a, as a co-participant, as a, as a patron of the Doctor's Patient Care Foundation and the Doctor's Lounge radio show. So what we need from you is uh, financial support. It doesn't have to be much. Uh, what we need to see are large numbers of donors. So if, if you like what you hear, uh, if you enjoy the product, um, we need to hear from you, and we need to hear from you in sort of a financial kind of way. So this is more than just sort of the generic sort of, uh, you know, go to the website and, 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 and put down some money. This is, um, again, yes, we need you to go to the website and put down some money, but for a slightly different reason. We need to, we need to give the powers that be evidence that we have enough listeners out there, and we know that you're there. We know that there are 15,000 podcast downloads a month. Um, so we know that you're there. We're grateful that you're there. Uh, we actually had a chance to hear from a couple of you um, at the Docs for Patient Care uh, Direct Primary Care Summit, which took place in Orlando um, earlier this month. Uh, so we'd love to hear those stories. We're delighted to hear about folks who come up to us and say, hey, listen to your show. Uh, it's one of the reasons I've come to the meeting, and that is awesome. That's fantastic. So for those of you who did that, again, we are so, so grateful. But for the rest of you, we need to hear from you in another way. Um, we need you to go to the website, and again, it's not a matter of the raw number of dollars we produce. Obviously, we need the dollars because in 2018, the bottom line is if the dollars don't come from individual donors, lots of donors donating relatively small amounts, we're going to have a hard time surviving in 2018. That is the ugly reality of the situation uh, because the big donors are saying, you got to show us the love. you got to show us that you got people out there, and so we need you to do that. We need you to go to www.dnumeral4pcfoundation.org and give generously not only 
for the dollars, but also as, as to, to assert yourself as someone who supports the foundation. So we thank you in advance for that, but please drop what you're doing and take care of that. You can put the podcast on pause, go to your computer and do it and pick up later on, whatever it takes, but we need your support. The good news is uh, we are busier than what do you call it? A, a, a one-arm paper hanger, whatever the expression is. Can't remember off the top of my head with a microphone in front of me. But but we are busy. We got stuff going on that is really really exciting stuff. Uh, we just completed this meeting in Orlando that I talked about, our second annual direct primary care meeting and it was a standing room only event the speakers were fantastic the audience was fantastic and so uh, what i was doing there as uh, a a host of the show was to uh, acquire gather interview a series of folks we have six interviews to share with you over the course of two shows which i will do uh, with this last week in October, uh, and then probably at least one week during November, possibly December. Uh, but these are incredible stories that you will hear from folks who have either started their own direct primary care practices or have uh, a similar story or adventure to tell. And it is uh, an incredibly inspiring – I was very inspired with this experience. Uh, these folks have far more guts than I had uh, at this point in my career. These folks are all younger than me. These are folks that are either coming out of training and they're doing direct primary care practices or they went into a traditional insurance-based practice and discovered that they were unable to serve their patients the way they wanted. And uh, for them, appropriately, it was an all-or-nothing thing. Either they were going to do it the right way or they weren't. And so you're going to hear some really neat stories. Uh, So I'm going to stop talking about the stories and actually play them. So what I'm going to do is switch to the interview track. Uh, The first uh, person that you're going to hear from is Dr. Julie Gunther. Uh, She was the, uh, is the founder of sparkmd.com, which is in Boise, Idaho. Uh, And uh, once again, an incredibly uh, interesting story to hear. So I am going to go ahead and and play that interview. Uh, Definitely worth your time to hear. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak, your host for this morning. Uh, we are, as we've mentioned before, we are in sunny Orlando, Florida for the Doctor Patient Care Foundation's biggest meeting of the year, our direct primary care meeting uh, sponsored by the Physicians Foundation and the Florida Medical Association, and we're certainly grateful for their support. Uh, as part of what we're doing is uh, getting a series of interviews from folks who have very interesting stories, uh, adventures in direct primary care, and sort of what their thoughts are not only just their own stories, but kind of what their thoughts are on, you know, what the state of healthcare is in general, and, and the challenges primary care physicians face, and how direct primary care can sort of fill that void and and help correct some of these difficult issues that doctors, especially primary care physicians, but all of us are facing. So with me now is Julie Gunther, uh, who is a board certified family physician, went to Harvard University, and founded Spark MD, which is a uh, Southwest Idaho's first direct primary care practice. So she's going to share um, some thoughts with us about pretty much whatever she wants. So, Julie, the microphone is yours. Thank you, Dr. Mike, and uh, thanks to the Doctors for Patient Care Foundation for asking me to speak. So um, this has been an excellent conference with lots of enthusiasm. Um, you know, my impetus to transition to direct primary care was really born out of realizing that the healthcare construct I was practicing in was completely unsustainable for me and for physicians. 
Um, and one of my biggest fears and one of my biggest motivators really is how many, how many lovely, compassionate, uh, maybe even overly idealistic primary care or, or other types of doctors are out there that went into this for all kinds of altruistic reasons, um, who within three, five, 10, 15, however many years are looking at, um, leaving medicine entirely. Uh, and so my, my, my passion was not only to save myself and to restore the ability for me to be the doctor I wanted to be, um, but, but to look at a different pathway and to maybe pave a different path. So, so all the other doctors out there who were like me, who had a vision for sort of care of the total person, for something that some people have said is not, not a realistic notion of healthcare, the Marcus Welby ideal, or I like to say the Martha Quinn medicine woman ideal for, uh, people in my generation that might remember that show. But, but how many doctors are there out out there who who are looking for something very authentic that they believe has been lost and what can we do to inspire those doctors to stay stay in the game and to stay in healthcare um fundamentally that that's what we need as as people we need we need compassionate doctors who are more interested in connecting with the patient than in complying with various uh eponym related coding fractions um so dpc has been has been a, a saving grace for me it's inspired me that i can be the doctor i set out to be um and i said in a discussion yesterday but i've said a couple other times when i've spoke is is nothing pays like autonomy and i think many of us are called to primary care at the outset um with a desire for independence and to and to take care of of people uh, with a very distinct vision for compassion and time and, um, to kind of follow our calling. So, so direct primary care has, has given that back to me and I, I hope other people would be inspired that it's a sustainable path for primary care. Excellent thoughts. Excellent story. And, and your, your sentiments, you, you said it very well. And I, and I like the word that you used, which is authenticity. And I, I, that's not a word I've heard before to describe the problem, but I think it really nails it on the head. It's hard to be authentic when you're forced to think more about regulations than your patient. It's hard to be authentic when you have to stare at a computer instead of look into your patient's eyes and hold their hand and find out where it hurts and find out uh, what's bothering them. Um, but, uh, it, it, it sounds like you've also got some sort of higher thoughts about how DPC can kind of fill the void that we have, not only to take care of patients, but, you know, the doctors need some care as well. And and doctors are facing some problems because of all these regulatory burdens and because of the frustrations. So talk about that a little bit. You know, there, there's been a lot of dialogue about burnout and mindfulness. Um, and while I'm grateful that we and some of our governing bodies are starting to acknowledge uh, the mental health challenges that physicians have doing the work we do, um, one of my favorite quotes is, um, and it's not my quote, but um, continuing to change the construct that we have is sort of like taping wings on a car and calling it an airplane. And and at, at what point do we acknowledge that we're really beating our head against the wall to continue to try to succeed and find joy and find authenticity and do the amazing work we do in a broken construct? Um, when I worked for the broader hospital system, it, it really didn't hit me uh, as the epiphany should have. But, you know, there was the Lean Six Sigma, which I don't fully remember all of that, but but then I just remember there was Mitsubishi or Toyota or this. We were going to implement this thing on the wall that was how Toyota ran their plant. And 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 there was discussion about this is how airlines ensure quality. And, and fundamentally, yes, when you give flu shots or run a flu shot clinic or something extremely algorithmic, by all means, let's let's automate it. But but the fundamental challenge in healthcare is our end product is inconsistent. So no matter how much you automate what I do or the process, my end product 
the patient, the human that I'm going to care for is highly inconsistent and unpredictable. So you can't apply automated factory-based models to patient care. You can't speed up um, uh, the process. You you can't make it to, to some level. You can't make it more efficient because because it fundamentally breaks down. So I even before DPC, I started to sort of be uh, atypical within the system that I was employed because I was asking math questions, which is at what point do I close my practice? Well, Doctor Gunther, you don't close your practice. Well, my patients aren't dying at a rate faster than I'm acquiring them. So this isn't a whoever dies with the most patients wins game. And in primary care, I hope they come back. So there has to be a tap out point, right? But that's, you know, that's not talked about. It's almost like, well, I have 5,000 patients and it's worn as a badge of honor. And fundamentally, we think as a culture that a teacher can't handle 30 kids every day. So I don't see why we think a, pa- a physician can honorably care for, you know, three or 5,000 people. Um, the other, the other math question I used to always ask is, you know, uh, healthcare has a, has a, a really interesting business challenge, which is uh, the, the money bottleneck. So money comes into the healthcare system when you or I, when physicians. Okay, we're going to stop right there, and uh, and then I'm going to pick this up. There we go. Had to stop the uh, playback. Um, we'll pick this up at the beginning of the next segment. You're listening to the Doctors Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak with you here on America's Web Radio. Uh, during this hour, we are playing some interviews that we got at our direct primary care meeting in Orlando, Florida a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we are in the middle of an interview with Dr. Julie Gunther, who founded SparkMD.com in in Idaho. So we're just gonna. I just backed it up a few seconds so we could pick up uh, where we left off. Um, so here we go with Dr. Gunther. Dies with the most patients wins game, and in primary care, I hope they come back. So there has to be a tap out point, right? But that's you know that's not talked about. It's almost like, well, I have five thousand patients, and it's worn as a badge of honor. And fundamentally, we think as a culture that a teacher can't handle thirty kids every day. So I don't see why we think a, pa- a physician can honorably care for you know three or five thousand people. Um, the other the other math question I used to always ask is, you know, uh, healthcare has a has a, a really interesting business challenge, which is uh, the the money bottleneck. So money comes into the healthcare system when you or I, when physicians generate a code, 
that's how the money comes in. And, and yes, maybe it's a referral or an MRI or imaging or labs, or it's, you know, an E&M code that I, as the physician, write down. But fundamentally, I have to see someone, use my brain, write something on a piece of paper or in the computer. It all gets processed, et cetera. So there's only one way, really, money comes in. Um, and, and so we physicians are a financial bottleneck. So how do you make more money in a system that is ever growing in terms of its administrative support burden? Uh, there's 1 million physicians in this country and 20 million people in the healthcare labor force. So how does, how do we, how do I, the one physician, support 20 people's income? And, and the answer is you raise prices and you push more people through the funnel. So that's where we end up with the seven minute visit. And and I like to joke, you know, I live in a, a fairly reasonable sized community, but certainly not a metropolitan area. I'm from Boise, Idaho, and I wait in Starbucks longer than I used to spend time face to face with patients. And I'd like to think um, whatever issue a patient was willing to wait three to four weeks to see me for uh, certainly was worth more than the time I spent in line in Starbucks. So mathematically, what we have just doesn't make sense. And and what we're seeing is hardworking, inspired people trying trying to make this incredibly uh, impossible thing work. And and as a result, are coming out burnout, tired, exhausted, and feeling like the 15 years of their life or so they sacrificed to have the privilege to be a physician was a waste. Um, so, so it's broken. And I think articulating that is very good for the mental health of physicians who are maybe in a collegial situation where they're being told they're the only ones with the issue. And I would like to say that's not true. Um, the other thing we don't talk about that's, that's quite shameful is we lose about one physician a day to suicide because of, um, I think because of our incredibly high expectations and because we train in this funnel for so long. And when we come out, we feel trapped, um, at that same interval in adult lives, most of our friends from high school, etc., are having families, setting goals, exploring different careers, um, and we come out and we're financially behind, and we maybe have destroyed very important relationships through our training, um, and so it's a rough go. And to come out on the other end and not have autonomy, or what I would say is the integrity equivalent of someone with a PhD, um, is a tremendous loss. So. Again, looping back to what I'm passionate about, there are so many different venues of independent medicine where I think physicians can take back the physician-patient relationship in a way that is incredibly beneficial for patients and um, incredibly beneficial for physicians' mental health, well-being, welfare. And, and truthfully, it's not just about the money. Um, I know a lot of people would be skeptical. Uh, among my direct primary care peers, there's a number of us not taking an income. Um, either because we can't or because we're actually so um, ecstatic about what we're doing that it's not necessary at this point in our career. So, yeah. That your, your testimony, your testimony is a perfect blend of the math and the human side of the equation. And I think you bring up a lot of points that, 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 are, that bear repeating. I, th- I think the big one is that this is not about doctors. And that that needs to be emphasized as much as possible because folks on the other side of this issue think that this is sort of a concierge medicine move, right? It's not concierge medicine. We'll have to say it a thousand times and a thousand times more. And hearing you say, yeah, there are people out there that aren't taking home a paycheck at all. I mean, they are doing this for the love of the game. I mean, just because of their devotion to patients. And many physicians are taking home less instead of more. But because they're getting to do what they signed up to do, 
that it's worth it. And, uh, and, and then you blend in what folks who were still stuck on the, on the old side of the equation with the burnout rate, the suicide rate, the, the rate of depression and despondence. Um, I, I think you put it together beautifully. Um, you want to give us some details on, on how you created, uh, Spark MD and, and how that's going in Idaho? So I have to give credit to Dr. Josh Umber, who's been on Hannity and some other news stations and, and, and just done some incredibly tremendous work on behalf of this specific model of healthcare. I had the privilege of meeting him just totally randomly at the Scientific Assembly, which is a very large meeting for the American Academy of Family Physicians in 2013. Um, I actually left a coding lecture in frustration and sort of went looking for the free posters. And he was to the side with his partner, Dr. Doug, um, his, his professional partner. Dr. Doug talking about direct primary care, and for me, it was it, it put all the puzzle pieces together. So that was um, September 2013, and I was incredibly frustrated. Um, I, you know, had this, that sticker "Beat Head Here" sort of on the wall. You know, I actually also had a poster on my wall behind my computer, not in a patient-facing area, that said "Do no harm, take no shit." It, it mysteriously got taken down repeatedly and I'd stick it back up. But, but, um, so I was, I was professionally really frustrated and looking for a different way. And, um, when I heard Dr. Josh Umber talk about direct primary care, it's put all the pieces together. I, I hadn't realized how profound, uh, frankly, insurance was in a number of the systemization challenges I had experienced in primary care. And so I, I've never had a tremendous opposition to insurance per se. I think it's incredibly necessary for what insurance is for. But, but I, I oppose it from the standpoint that once you um, extract primary care from it, it becomes incredibly simplified and affordable. So, so September 2013 found out about this. Um, December 2013 made an offer on a small building in downtown Boise. Um, uh, I think, what, February or March? Um, February, actually, 2014, I gave notice to my employer. We closed on the building in April. Um, I was intending to open in July, take a little time off, get everything settled. Um, one of my very favorite patients actually uh, fell and broke his hip. His family called and said, we don't care where you are or what you're charging. We still want you to be his doctor. Can you come to a home visit? So literally two days after I quit my system job, it was patient number one. Um, he's still a patient today. He doesn't remember me now at this point. But um, uh, the building wasn't done in time, so I occupied a little 200-square-foot space um, that smelled like cigarettes and had no air conditioning <laughs> in the summer where it gets about 100 degrees until September, mid-September, our formal space opened, at which point I had a couple patients that came in and said, oh, okay, now I can refer my friends to you because the, the space I was in before that was so wonky. Um, I took care of the first 30 patients myself uh, and then around 30 patients added an MA who I'd worked with previously who's just an incredibly strong, hardworking Wonder Woman, honestly, jack of all trades um, and is the, the incredible force behind my practice. So, so in under a year, found out about direct primary care, dove all in, educated myself, got a bank loan, bought a building, which is a bad choice. Most people will tell you don't buy your building straight out of the gates, um, but it was part of my broader vision. I don't want to retire and get a watch. Um, <laughs> I'm two blocks from sort of the heart of our downtown, and I'm two blocks from the large hospital. So my hope is that my, uh, on a corner lot in an old Art Deco building, my hope is that it will appreciate as a, as an asset. And that's part of my business vision. So, um, the first year grew by about, um, actually the first eight months grew by about 30 patients a month. I was not allowed to solicit my patients when I left the hospital system. They, by definition, were their property. We can debate 
how I feel about that later. Um, and the second year grew about 20 patients a month. Third year grew about 12 to 18 patients a month. And last month actually crossed the milestone that was our original vision, which was 600 patients and um, one provider. I've added a nurse practitioner because I like to speak and talk and hope to inspire other doctors to be independent and to know there's a lot of ways to reclaim their love of, of medicine. Um, and so it's been incredibly fun. Uh, what DPC allows patients to see is the work we do. They see the behind the scenes. They see the phone calls and the emails. You get to spend more time with them. I spend 30 minutes on follow-ups, an hour with new patients. Um, I've gotten an edible arrangement. I got flowers after a pap smear. Uh, a woman said she'd, she'd never been, never had a doctor spend that kind of time with her. Um, it's not infrequent for patients to say, Oh my God, you just spent an hour with me. I had one patient ask if they could leave now. They were, they're like, are we done? Um, so, so it really flips primary care on its head and, and allows you to communicate with people that you earnestly care about them, which is not a lot different from the work I did in the system, but the, the patient experience is so fundamentally transformed that people understand what doctors do. That's incredible. That's a wonderful story. Uh, Julie Gunther, uh, f- founder of Spark MD in Southwest Idaho. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. So, what did you hear? You know, I and you'll hear more of this when you listen to these other folks who are going to tell their stories. But, but this is typical of of the sheer guts that these folks have. These young docs who are either coming right out of training or they spend, you know, a short amount of time in the traditional arrangement. And, uh, you know, not only are they are they going to a, a very different form of, you know, of, of how to deliver and pay for health care, uh, they're also doing gutsy things like buying buildings down the street from the hospital they just left and, and you know, doing this with, you know, some form of non-compete clause in place. Uh, you know, just incredibly gutsy things that uh, that just make these stories really terrific to hear. So, we're going to move on to the next one, which is a gentleman, gentleman named Dr. Pinckney, Dr. James Pinckney, uh, who founded uh, a, a group called Pro, uh, Diamond Physicians uh, in Texas, uh, who has figured out how to you know, syndicate this in a way and, uh, and, 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 and clone this and replicate it uh, in, in multiple locations at once and is, is growing rapidly. So uh, we will move to that interview and, and let you hear that. And I am here interviewing different folks with different stories about their journey, if you will, in direct primary care. So we have James Pinckney. Uh, he is the CEO, I guess, uh, of uh, CEO and founder um, of a company that is taking direct primary care to the next level, which is to actually build something that can be uh, cloned in different places, uh, a structure that can be that, that's more of a turnkey than trying to figure out how to do this on your own. So uh, James is going to tell us his story, and I'm going to give him the microphone and just get out of the way. James, it's all yours. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, yeah, I, I am. Um, my name, again, is, is James Pinckney. My clients call me Dr. James, and I am the CEO and founder of Diamond Physicians. I actually started the group uh, back in 2012. So... Um, we were one of the early adopters, and the the climate and the atmosphere around DPC has completely changed over the next over the last five years, and it's it's unbelievable. The movement is it's it's full of excitement. There's 250 doctors here. You can feel the energy. It's palpable in the room, uh, and it's just amazing to see where we've come and how far we've come. 
so back in uh, 2008, it's actually when I had the idea to... Uh, okay, we're coming to the end of the segment. This is Dr. James Pinckney. Uh, you are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us for the rest of his interview. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak with you today on America's Web Radio. We are playing a series of interviews uh, from our direct primary care meeting held in Orlando a couple of weeks ago. Some very incredible, inspiring stories from folks who have founded their own personal direct primary care practices or have founded companies that spawn direct primary care practices. We had just started at the end of the last segment an interview with Dr. James Pinckney II, founder of Diamond Physicians, a company that can replicate the concept of a direct primary care practice in multiple locations uh, and is growing rapidly, very successful. And I will tell you, his story is one of the most inspiring I've ever heard about how a young doc has the sheer guts uh, to do the stuff that he did. So without further ado, I'm going to shut up and let him talk. Here we go. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, yeah, I, I am. Um, my name, again, is, is James Pinckney. My clients call me Dr. James, and I am the CEO and founder of Diamond Physicians. I actually started the group uh, back in 2012. So uh, we were one of the early adopters, and the, the climate and the atmosphere around DPC has completely changed over the, next, over the last five years, and it's, it's unbelievable. The movement is it's, it's full of excitement. There's 250 doctors here. You can feel the energy. It's palpable in the room, uh, and it's just amazing to see where we've come and how far we've come. Uh, so back in uh, 2008, it's actually when I had the idea to uh, change from general surgery to family medicine and pursue uh, a DPC career. Uh, and back then it wasn't DPC. I was calling it membership medicine or affordable concierge. Uh, and I wanted to really create a model that was available for everyone and not just the super wealthy. So I uh, switched from Gen Surge at Cedar sinai in L.A. to uh, family medicine at Methodist back at Dallas. Uh, I'm from Dallas originally and uh, started the practice right out of residency. So I, I was moonlighting in the ER for a few years to build some capital. I uh, ended up going to nine different banks with my business plan. Uh, everyone loved the idea, uh, but no one wanted to finance the project. So I got nine no's, 
And the same day I actually met my future wife, I got two yeses from two different banks. So that was a great day. Um, received funding and uh, decided to open the practice from scratch, an organic practice. And uh, then I found out about other DPC docs around the country that were doing the same thing and kind of gave me affirmation that I wasn't crazy, that this idea uh, was something that could be scaled and was something that was the the efficient, more efficient model of the future. And we started with uh, zero patients, myself and uh, my business partner, Dr. Anthony Lissy. And uh, the first two years was were very rough. It was rocky. It was challenging. We had this great idea, what we thought was a great idea. And the patients weren't just, they weren't flooding to our doors. It was very slow. It was a trickle. Uh, and then about 18 months into the venture, we, uh, we were able to Locked down a, a national Vistaprint commercial. I don't know if you ever saw it, but in um, we shot it in the fall of 2013. It aired in April 2014, and tens of millions of people across the country saw this commercial, and the phone lines just exploded. And we started signing clients, cold leads, straight from the Vistaprint commercial. They would call in, and they saw the commercial. They went to our website, and we're signing up. Uh, then we had a uh, front page of Dallas Morning News. They did an article on our practice. 700,000 readers saw that. Top fold on a Sunday morning. And again, the phone lines exploded. And that really gave us our jump start that we desperately needed. And we took that and we ran with it. And we decided that we were going to franchise the model. Uh, and we took all of our procedures and our operations and we put them into a beautiful uh, protocol system that's virtual. Uh, and that way we could actually have a turnkey operation and could scale quickly. So now at this point in 2017, we have four locations across the DFW Metroplex. We have seven physicians and just under 2,000 clients. We call them clients, not patients. Uh, and it's been a wonderful ride. That's incredible. There's a couple of points of the story I want you to build on. The first is even before the idea of the DPC practice hit your brain, if I've, if I've got this right, you had the guts to change from a general surgery residency because you did this in reticency, right? Now, I imagine the docs listening want to hear, you know, well, how do you find the guts to switch? I mean, you went through all the pain of the junior years of general surgery and then something – what motivated you to go to family practice? I mean, it was a great move, but, but there, there's, there's got to be a story there too. Yeah, I, I was I was just miserable as a general surgery resident, and I remember, you know, one night I was on call, and um, so many residents had either got fired or quit. We were down to uh, just a few of us, so we were taking what we called rainbow call. We had all the services, so six services. I had six pages around my my waist, uh, two cell phones. Had to take trauma call as well, and I was standing on the bridge on the eighth floor, going from one tower to the other at Cedars, and it was about three o'clock in the morning, and everything went off at the same time. And I sat there, and I had a little bit of a breakdown. And I actually called my mom, and I said, I don't think I can do this. And this is 3 o'clock in the morning. And she said, you know what? Just take one situation at a time, and you'll get through the night. And that's what I did. I, I took the most critical patients and assessed them first and went through my checklist and somehow made it through that night. But I honestly I didn't think I was going to make it. Uh, and I knew then that I needed to make a change um, you know, my personality, I'm a people person. I love to talk to people. I love to interact with patients and I love to, to be in the operating suite as well, but it just wasn't, it didn't feel like a good fit for me. Uh, and I was taking care of a celebrity patient 
one night uh, at Cedars, and they asked me to call their doctor. And it was 12 o'clock at night. And I said, you know, it's midnight. I said, I don't care. I want you to call my doctor and go over the post-surgical issues right now. So I said, okay. So I called the doctor, and he was very gracious, and that was my first taste of concierge medicine. So I said, wow, you know, what an amazing concept, but how can we make it available for everyone and not just the elite? And then, and then I started having that idea and that vision of, of what now is DPC, uh, a capitation, a membership medicine model where you one low monthly fee for all these services, unlimited visits, no copay, 24-hour access to your doctor, unlimited urgent care, 80 to 90% discounts on labs and imaging. And I couldn't let it go. I couldn't let that vision go. Uh, and I really want to see this, this model propagate throughout the country and, and spread like wildfire because it is it is the truth. I know it sounds too good to be true, but it is a model that is so efficient and cuts out bureaucracy and the third-party payer system and makes it simple. It goes back to the way things were in the 40s and 50s where it was the patient and the doctor. It reinvigorates the patient-physician relationship, and, and that's what this is about, taking care of patients uh, and adding value to primary care. Can you talk about where the, – this is the other thing that struck me about your story is – Talk about where you found the courage. I mean, first off, it's, it's gutsy enough, right? I mean, I've been through this too, right? I was in a surgical specialty residency. I never would have had the guts to do what you did. Fantastic. Where did you find the guts to, at the end of residency, right? When, and where, you know, for those of you who aren't physicians, at the end of residency, you're dirt poor. You barely have two nickels to rub together, and you're just dying for something stable, something that's going to put a couple of nickels in your pocket so that you're not living paycheck to paycheck. Where did you find the guts, number one, to go to a bank and go into debt further and go into DPC knowing that you were going to have probably two years of an empty waiting room and a hard time finding patients one at a time? Where did you find that fortitude? You know, that's a that's a great question. I. I, I'm a man of faith, so you know, definitely my faith and my trust in God was really gave me the strength to to and the courage to to make that jump and take that leap of faith because that's what it really is. You have no idea what's going to happen, and you just have to have faith. Uh, and I've always been an entrepreneur at heart uh, from very young age. I, I was an entrepreneur and started various businesses, so I had the the business acumen to do it, and I definitely knew I had the work ethic. I get that from my father watching him. You know, climb the corporate ladder and, and work 16, 18 hour days for 20 years. So it was just a matter of putting together a great business plan, talking to mentors. I pulled different concierge doctors at the time in 2010 all around the country and coming up with a plan that I thought I could execute. Yeah, and, and then after residency, it's called delayed gratification. You just have to keep pushing until you reach your ultimate goal. And if that means that I have to. I worked in the ER. I did 24-hour shifts. I was Q2. And I could do that because of my surgery residency. I, I said, look, I'm just going to pretend like I'm a surgery resident again. I'm going to go Q2 call. I'm going to do 24-hour shifts in the ER. Uh, and I was able to make quite a bit of money uh, over you know, a year and a half. And I put that money towards my business. You are a better man than I, James. I tell you what, that is, those are the kind of inspirational stories that hopefully will motivate other folks to to, to take the leap into DPC and and uh, and make this kind of thing happen. This is what else you want to tell us? I mean, this is too cool. I, I can't stand it. It's great. Well, I want to encourage you know all the medical students, in whatever area you're in, whatever stage in this medical uh, life cycle you're in, you know you're smart. You have the work ethic. 
we know this is a superior model and we need your help to make it work. We can't, no one can do this by themselves, but as a group together, we can facilitate change in this country uh, and, and make the American healthcare system fantastic and wonderful for our patients. Incredible story, James. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. All right. So there you are. Uh, you've heard two inspirational stories. Uh, one who took an incredible risk to leave a stable fee-for-service insurance-based practice and go out on her own and build it slowly. Uh, and then one story that even takes that another level up uh, in somebody who not only changed specialties in the middle of residency. Now, for those of you who aren't docs, and I tried to explain a little bit during the interview itself, but but you have to think about this for a little bit. Um, he changed. Not only did he change residencies, he completely changed cultures. Uh, you know, when you are in training, you know you're kind of split between the non-surgical specialties and the surgical specialties, and they don't cross paths very much in training. So it would be one thing. If you switched from, say, general surgery to ENT, my specialty, or to urology, health specialty, or to anesthesiology, or something that is inside that surgical culture, uh, what Dr. Pinkley did was completely different. It was a radical switch. Uh, he, he left the operating room forever, which, uh, you know, is a significant cultural shift uh, and, and got away from surgical, you know, care as, as one's primary function. And, uh, and and that's a huge change. Uh, you know, it had to change the people he hung out with. It obviously changed the people who were training him. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to hear him talk about that moment where all six pagers went off at once. And, uh, and and he decided, again, separate from the direct primary care issue uh, per se, uh, but it, it shows the, the, the guts that he has uh, to be able to, to make a radical switch like that. So it comes as no surprise, if you're strong enough to do that, that you would be strong enough, again, out of right out of training where the average debt right off the top of my head is somewhere in the order of $300,000. And I don't know what his debt was. He didn't, he didn't discuss it. But the point is, uh, you know, you're, you're not in a strong financial position. And yet he had the guts to go to the banks and say, I want to do this by myself. Oh, and by the way, this is a completely unproven, totally radical financial model. So hats off to Doctors Gunther and Pinckney for inspirational stories. You are listening to The Doctors' Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Obamacare is failing, but in order to get back on the right track with health policy, people need to be informed. Obamacarewatch.org is your resource to understand what's happening with this law and what you can do to stay active, stay informed, and make positive change happen. Obamacarewatch.org. Visit us now. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Right now, there are millions of Americans whose lives we could could be made so much better if they had access to low-cost hearing aids. You know, this is a place where we could loosen up outdated regulation and with a few consumer protections put in place, we could actually let the market work to help bring better products to people at lower costs. Dang, did I hear that right? That was that was Senator Warren talking. Maybe I need a hearing aid. I don't know. I, if I Correct me if I'm wrong. Did I just hear Senator Warren say we're going to roll back regulations and we're going to let the free market do what it's going to do? Did I actually hear that? Or maybe I need to go to work tomorrow and have one of the audiologists in my practice test my hearing. I don't know. I, you know it turns out that that's, that's true. Um, it was actually Senator Warren and Senator Grassley of Iowa, right, one Democrat, one Republican, that brought – this over-the-counter Hearing Aid Act of 2017 to Congress, um, it passed uh, both houses of Congress over the summer, and in in August, uh, you know, Trump actually signed it. So there's another thing that makes me wonder if I'm not hallucinating: is a bill passes both houses of Congress and the president signs it, and by God, we've got a law, and and maybe one that actually has the potential to do some good. Who knows? So what does this law do? So let, remember, a little background from the last segment, right? We talked about there are two kinds of, of things that you can put in your ear to make your hearing better. One is a traditional FDA-approved hearing aid that requires an audiologist to see you and to have your hearing formally tested, and you get this test called an audiogram that extensively tests your hearing and the function of the ear, uh, and then you have the hearing aid fitted to you and customized based on the information in that audiogram. So that's the first type. The other type is the other extreme, which is the personal, I'm going to call it a personal sound amplification product, right? This is something you buy off the shelf, has no customization to you. You don't even have to have a hearing loss to buy one. You just stick the thing in your ear and sounds should at least in theory get louder, although that's not always the case. What the what the legislation does is create a middle category between the two, between the super high end, super expensive four, five, six thousand dollar per pair hearing aid and the ultra cheap as low as fifty bucks a pair hearing aid. That there's a middle category that sort of covers that five hundred dollar per ear to fifteen hundred dollar per ear category, which right now that's a big hole in the product line that people can buy. So this law says we're going to instruct the FDA to create this third category, this middle-of-the-road category that will be called over-the-counter hearing aids. It will be regulated by the FDA. The devices in this category will need to meet the same quality standards and safety standards and labeling standards as the high-end hearing aids. But we'll do a little less and presumably cost a little less. Now, the FDA has three years to do this work and get uh, folks to be able to, you know, manufacturers to create these these products. 
And remember, this was all based on the recommendations of uh, the National Academy of Sciences that came out with 12 recommendations. Uh, and with the passage of this act, two out of the four have been implemented, namely to remove the requirement that a physician see a patient in order for them to get a hearing aid or for a patient to sign a waiver acknowledging that they really should see a doc. And, uh, and the second being that the FDA create this category. Uh, and so, you know, two down, two to go in terms of the meaningful hate that word meaningful, and if you listen to my show, you know why, uh, but meaningful recommendations that came out of that. So, um, you know, this is, again, only for folks who have mild to moderate hearing loss, and everyone acknowledges if you have severe hearing loss that that's not going to work. So so here's the first question. Is Elizabeth Warren was, was selling this as deregulation? Now, do you agree with that or do you not? On the other hand, it is adding to the books, right? This is going to be more regs the FDA is going to write, but I think it's fairly clear, and not everybody agrees with this, but in my opinion, it's fairly clear that that at least from a functional standpoint, this deregulates because it allows hearing aid manufacturers and people who want to buy hearing aids to do something they couldn't do before, which is namely to purchase a hearing aid somewhere between $500 and $1,500 a side, which can be manufactured more cheaply than the super high-end hearing aids. So it should open the market up some. On the other hand, you are adding to regulation. So it's a very emotional issue, as these things often are. You're dealing with people's livelihoods and their incomes in an industry that's pretty big. So we've got groups that are against this regulation. Uh, ASHA, the American Speech and Hearing Association, which is probably one of the ones that uh, otolaryngology is closest to, uh, they're against it. Um, the American Consumer Institute is also against it. Uh, and their reason for being against it is, is there are some very, very appropriate um, misgivings, let's say, uh, objections um, with this law. The big one being is that hearing loss can be a harbinger or a symptom of a significant medical condition. You could have chronic infections in your ear. You could have a, uh, a, a benign growth in the middle ear called a cholesteatoma, which although it's not technically uh, a tumor, it can erode tissue like a tumor, it can erode bone like a tumor, and it can cause very serious complications if it's left unchecked for years on end. Uh, there's also something called an acoustic neuroma, which is also benign, but it is a tumor. It is a growth, and it grows on the hearing nerve between the inner ear and the brain. And yes, they're rare, but they happen, and you could have an acoustic neuroma if you have hearing loss. And you could significantly delay your evaluation by a physician and delay a very significant diagnosis. And when, when these two organizations raise the objections, they're absolutely right that these are significant issues that need to be handled. Um, there's also some of these cheap hearing aids. There's no internal protection against over-stimulating the ear, and so some of these cheap uh, hearing aid devices can actually damage the ear the same way that you know earbuds and headphones damage the hearing of kids that turn up their iPods too loud, that the same thing can happen with these cheaper-end you know, hearing assist devices. On the other hand, there are... Uh, folks like the Hearing Loss Association of America and the Consumer Technology Association who are very much in favor of this because of the free market competition and the price protection. Now, there's a there's a dark side to that as well is that a lot of these companies are like Bose and some of these folks that make uh, you know headphones already. And it's easy to appreciate that the technology that goes into wireless Bluetooth headphones, 
bone conduction earphones like I just bought. Uh, and these kind of things are all very similar to hearing aid technologies. And so it's not a huge leap to think that these folks couldn't build a hearing aid since they've been building devices for the ear for a great many years. Is that good or is it bad? Well, we don't know yet, but thanks to this legislation, I think we are going to find out. No question about it. So you knew at some point that I was going to stop reporting facts and give you my opinion on this, and I I think it's reasonable for me to do because I'm an ear, nose, and throat doc, and I've been working with hearing-impaired patients for about 25 years in private practice. So I think I got enough experience to try to render some opinion that is somewhat useful at least. Uh, I think in the end this is going to be a good idea. And I think that the argument that giving folks the ability to get a hearing aid for themselves is going to potentially delay a diagnosis, I said that's a legitimate uh, objection or a a legitimate concern, and it is. The problem is, you know, we already have this mechanism in many other aspects of medicine, right? If you extend that logic to pain medicine or a sleeping aid or, you know, any number of over-the-counter things that you can buy, medicine for allergies, whatnot, I mean, all of these, all of the symptoms that you're trying to treat with over-the-counter medicines could be harbingers of bigger symptoms that may require medical attention and might require it urgently. But if you extend the logic to everything else you can get over-the-counter, well, you better not sell pain medicine, you better not sell Tylenol or Aleve because pain can be a sign of malignancy or something else, so better take that off the market. I mean, you see where I'm going with this. You know, if if you have a stuffy nose, well, you could have a tumor in your nose blocking your airway. You know, maybe we shouldn't sell allergy medicine. So, I mean, the idea that, I mean, selling over-the-counter hearing aids and, and worrying about the diagnoses you'll delay is kind of the same situation we have in other parts of medicine. So, uh, in the end, I think you have to acknowledge that purchasing an over-the-counter hearing aid without the intervention of, a, of, a, of an appropriate physician or audiologist does raise the risk of a delayed diagnosis. But in our system, I think we have to be willing to accept that just the way we accept it in other parts of medicine with pain medicine and allergy medicine and sleeping aids and everything else that you can buy over-the-counter. I think that makes sense. And I think the benefits probably outweigh the potential risk. But it does put a sort of public awareness campaign obligation on ear, nose, and throat docs and audiologists to be sure that we do our part to make the public aware that if you have a hearing loss or you feel like you have a hearing loss, because a lot of people come in the office and think they have a hearing loss and have normal hearing tests, uh, that we need to be sure that we, number one, make the public aware, and number two, we then have to respond to pressure to make it easier for people to obtain hearing tests. Maybe we screen in the mall or we, you know, we, we do other things to bring, you know, hearing testing, you know, closer to the public and more accessible and less costly, which puts the onus on us. Um, you know, second is we need to do something. I mean, there's no question. I see this in my practice every single day where we test somebody for hearing and they have a significant hearing loss and we talk to them about hearing aids and they walk away because they can't afford them. And that's bad. You know, we talked earlier about the data about, you know, uh, uh, cognitive decline, onset of dementia because of hearing loss and the adverse effects it has on the aging brain. That's an issue. And now we're, we're sort of raising that risk because of hearing loss. I think finally it'll put the burden it'll put the burden on us and, and in my practice we're going to respond to that challenge. We're already making big plans for revolutionizing how we sell hearing aids in our practice because of this law and I think it's going to be a good thing. 
you know, will will there be less profit per hearing aid? Absolutely. But we can sell to so many more people and help so many more people that I think in the end this ends up being a good thing. And I think it's going to be a good thing in terms of education as well because right now people look at the $3,000 or $2,000 per ear hearing aids and they don't understand why it costs so much to build a hearing aid. Well, if we introduce cheaper hearing aids to the market and you see what you don't get for what you don't pay – you'll understand why the expensive hearing aids are expensive. Or put another way, you don't understand why a Mercedes or a BMW or a Lexus is such a nice car unless you see it next to the Chevrolet that it's parked next to. And then you can compare the two and say, oh, I get it. You know, the Lexus has a bigger engine. It's quieter. It's smoother. It's nicer inside. It's prettier. And I didn't understand that till I looked at the low-end car, the Chevy or the Dodge or whatever, and said, oh, I understand now why the other one is so expensive. So I think there will be a lot of education and there will be a lot of understanding of what you get for $2,500 per side, that you get better quality, better performance. We can treat problems like tinnitus, like ringing uh, with an expensive hearing aid, and that that's a big problem for folks, and, and the, the cheaper hearing aids aren't going to be able to face that, at least not in the beginning, but maybe we'll get some trickle-down technology later. So I think in the end... Uh, I personally look forward to this challenge. Our practice looks forward to this challenge. We intend to respond to this aggressively. Um, we intend to be able to serve the public better. We look forward to that. Uh, and I think in the end, this is going to be a good thing if we do it right and if the FDA gets the details right as they write these regulations. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Dr. Karuchek, your host. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.